This is the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. The 12th chapter begins right in the midst of a very fiery torrent of words that Paul has been led of the Holy Spirit to write to people who have questioned his authority as an apostle. And he is pushed into the corner. He does not care to boast about himself. And yet he has no alternative but to defend his office as an apostle and his authority as an apostle. So that is some word of explanation for these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 following. I am obliged to boast. It does no good. But I shall go on to tell of visions and revelations granted by the Lord. I know a Christian man who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of it, I do not know, God knows, was caught up as far as the third heaven. And I know that this same man, whether in the body or out of it, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard words so secret that human lips may not repeat them. About such a man as that, I am ready to boast. But I will not boast on my own account except of my weakness. If I should choose to boast, it would not be the boast of a fool, for I should be speaking the truth. But I refrain because I should not like anyone to form an estimate of me which goes beyond the evidence of his own eyes and ears. And so to keep me from being unduly elated by the magnificence of such revelations, I was given a sharp pain in my body which came as Satan's messenger to bruise me. This was to save me from being unduly elated. Three times I begged the Lord to rid me of it, but his answer was, My grace is all you need. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. I shall therefore prefer to find my joy and pride in the very things that are my weakness, and then the power of Christ will come and rest upon me. Hence I am well content for Christ's sake with weakness, contempt, persecution, hardship, and frustration. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God bless to us an understanding of this part of his word. Lately we have been studying great trials of men in the Bible. All of us in life are faced with trials. In Trials are to bring out that test in us and to show us where we are in our relationship with God. Last week we saw the test that came to our Lord Jesus Christ when we considered the temptation that he experienced when Satan came to him. It's important to remember that immediately after his baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon him, that he was driven into the wilderness and there tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights. It is also important to remember that, unlike some of our experiences, when Jesus left that period of temptation, he came down from that mountain, not ashamed, but full of the power of the Lord, and entered into the synagogue in his hometown. 
and there preached the gospel. When he began to preach, he said that he had come to set captives free. Captives of whom? Do you consider yourself a captive? If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a captive of the devil. He came to preach deliverance from the captivity of Satan and to destroy his works. And if you believe Jesus' words, then you believe that. Now then, one of those people whom Jesus liberated and who became the stalwart missionary and herald of the cross and of the liberating power of Christ was the great Apostle Paul. Paul himself had to face privation and temptation. It's interesting to think about the ministry today and the ministry then. Paul struck on the road to Damascus responded to the call of the Lord and after that began his training and his experience and they then began to take the message of Christ every place he could go consumed with a holy passion for Jesus Christ are you consumed with any passion for Christ or is Christ simply someone to lull you and to comfort you in times of trouble or loss? Or do you love him so much that you want his conscious lordship day by day by day? Well, this is the experience of a true Christian. His life is under the conscious lordship of Christ, and so it was of the Apostle Paul. Paul went into the city of Corinth sometime around 50 or 51 A.D. He spent 18 months in Corinth, longer than he spent in any other single city with the exception of Ephesus. There he made his living by working with leather and by working with tents. And he went to the synagogue and he sought to take the Old Testament scriptures and prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Many people were converted, and a church was formed. And then Paul, after 18 months, went on his way. Then he began to get disturbing reports of divisions that had occurred in the church, and so it was necessary for him to write letters back to Corinth. We have two of those letters in our New Testament. 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now the church at Corinth was a greatly troublesome church to Paul. We sometimes think of these earliest Christians as being perfect. They were not. They were people who were tempted just as we are and they had corruption and apathy in the church just as we have corruption and apathy in the church today. They had heresy, they had immorality, they had abuses of every description. They had all kinds of sinful pride. And this is especially true of the church in Corinth. Corinth was an enormous city of some 600,000 people. It was a city notorious for its immoralities and its vice. And here this little Christian congregation begins to spread and to grow. And with their growing pains comes troubles and so Paul must write 
Now, shortly after 1 Corinthians had been written, a messenger came to Paul and told him how his admonitions had been received and gave him some more information. And this occasioned Paul writing a second letter back to Corinth because there were some people in Corinth who were criticizing the preacher. We've been doing that a long time. And, <laughs> and, uh, but they didn't have much grounds for this, for this Paul. They got a lot for this one. But, uh, but Paul had people back in Corinth who were uh, full of all kinds of pride and they were not very far from Athens and they were very learned and some of them had great ecstatic experiences and some of them questioned Paul and his authority as an apostle and uh, so they deprecated him. Now slander and abuse were nothing new to Paul. He had been through this. But he has pushed, he does not like this business of having to defend himself. There were people back there, and they were Judaizers, Jewish Christians, but they were trying to pull people back under the old Jewish law. They were making little of the cross of Jesus, upon which Paul insisted must be our salvation, and that it must be by grace alone. And because of their persistent ridicule of him, he defends his apostolic authority and thereby gives us an insight, an autobiographical insight into him and into his great trials. He, first of all, in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, once more let me advise you not to look upon me as a fool. Yet if you do, then listen to what this fool has to boast about. I am not now speaking as the Lord commands me, but, it is, but as a fool who must be in on this business of boastings. Since all the others are so proud of themselves, let me do a little boasting as well. From your, here he uses a little ridicule, from your heights of superior wisdom, I'm sure you can smile tolerantly on a fool. Oh, you're tolerant, all right. You don't mind, do you, if a man takes away your liberty, spends your money, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, and even smacks you in the face? I am almost ashamed to say that I never did brave, strong things like that to you. Yet in whatever particular they enjoy such confidence, I, speaking as a fool, remember, have just as much confidence. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I have more claim to this title than they. This is a silly game, but look at this list. I have worked harder than any of them. I have served more prison sentences. I have been beaten times without number. I have faced death again and again. I have been beaten the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times. I have been beaten with rods three times. I have been stoned once. I have been shipwrecked three times. I have been 24 hours in the open sea. In my travels, I have been in constant danger from floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from pagans. Now, do you see? 
Later, when he writes to Galatia, he has written a letter to Galatia. And in the letter there, he has to say to these Galatians, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Here he lists some of those marks. He has been branded because of his persecution for Jesus Christ. If you had to take off your coat, could you show any stripes that had ever been laid to your back for Jesus? There are a great many people who bear in their body the marks of Satan. They bear in their body the marks of Satan because of what alcohol or drugs or immorality or lust or covetousness and cheating and lying and stealing have done to them. But how many bear in their body the brand of the Lord Jesus because they have been willing to put all on the altar for him? Well, Paul did. And so when they boasted about their apostolic authority, Paul counters with reiterating this list of sufferings through which he has passed for his Lord Jesus Christ. And then they had some super spiritual people in the church in Corinth. And these people created a great deal of havoc. Some of them had had revelations. Some of them could speak with tongues of ecstasy. And they prided themselves in what they did, and spiritual pride is a terrible thing. And I always say at this point that that pride works two ways. There are people who are proud that they speak in tongues, and there are people who are proud they don't speak in tongues. And both are equal but opposite errors. But there can become a time where people pride themselves in ecstatic experiences and talk beyond what they really live. And Paul here speaks about an experience of his such as no other apostle was ever given with the possible exception of Peter, James, and John when they were taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, I am obliged to boast. All right, I'll boast. You talk about revelations and visions as giving some authority to those Judaizers who are in your midst. I don't want to tell you this experience, he says, but I'll tell you. Fourteen years ago, and I tried to figure this out, where it would have been, and the best reckoning I could come to was probably in Antioch. It was not his Damascus Road experience. He says, 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. I was caught up to the third heaven. Now, the word caught up means rapture. Jesus taught about the rapture. Paul teaches about it in, uh, in his Thessalonian epistles. He says I, ra, the word rapture simply means caught up. He says, I was caught up whether this was physical or not. He says, I do not know. God knows. He didn't rule out the possibility that it could have been physical. He just says whether or not it was, I don't know. God knows. But he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. Now, generally speaking, the people looked upon heaven as the clouds and the sky. That's heaven. You go outside and you look at the heavens. At night, you see the stars and the moon. And you talk about all of those stars and the moon, and you speak of that as the heavens. But Paul says there's something better than that. Better than clouds and vast expanses of blue sky, better than celestial bodies, better than these 
stars and the moon that you see? I was caught up to the third heaven. By this, it's the ultimate trip into the very presence of God himself. You say, you don't really believe that. I believe every word of it. If I believe Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, and if I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and if I believe he walked on the water, if I believe he raised Lazarus from the dead, then what trouble is there in believing this? That's what it was written for, so I'd believe it. He was caught up into the third heaven. This must have been an experience like the transfiguration. Here he experienced something that taxed verbal description. Something that defied human vocabulary. Something that could not be translated into speech. John Calvin says of this particular experience of Paul that God gave it to him for the simple reason that Paul was going to have put upon him trials enough to break a thousand hearts. And so it was. So Paul says, you have people who have experienced these great heights of ecstasy. And notice Paul didn't try to achieve this experience. God gave it to him. Beware of people who are going to show you how to achieve some experience. God will give you the experience if you lay yourself open to him and available to him such experiences as are needful. Here Paul is caught up into the third heaven, into paradise. He saw these things that, that he could not utter, that it is indeed, he says, unlawful for a man to utter. But he said, you know what God did? He said, after this, God put a thorn in my flesh. This trial of Paul's, he calls a thorn in the flesh. Did you ever get a thorn worked into your flesh? You couldn't pick the thing out, and the more you tried, the worse it would work in. A thorn in the flesh is the way the, author, the King James Version translates it. The Greek speaks of it as a red-hot stake driven into his head. There are many conjectures as to what this trial of Paul might have been. There are people who say that Paul, like Oliver Cromwell or Caesar or Napoleon, was a victim of epilepsy. And that after an epileptic seizure, he was left with these dreadful headaches. There are people who said that he was the victim of a particular type of malarial fever that was in uh, the regions through which he passed, in Pamphylia. And that this type of malaria fever would send you into a delirium. And that after this, your hair would fall out and your eyes would be encrusted with matter. And they would bulge, and it would make you unsightly and ugly to look at. In the letter to the Galatians, he makes some reference to the fact that they loved him so much that they would have pulled their eyes out and given them to him. And there are people who think that maybe that was it. You remember when the high priest struck him in the face, and Paul reviled him, and someone said to him, why do you revile the high priest? And he said, I didn't know it was the high priest. Maybe it meant that... He couldn't see very well, and he couldn't recognize the high priest. 
He said, you see how large a letter I write. Maybe there was something wrong with his eyes. Martin Luther and many of the Roman Catholics felt that it was some passion, some sensual passion. Calvin calls that ridiculous. He doesn't agree with it. I don't know what it was, and they don't either. The Holy Spirit in his wisdom has concealed it from us, and it's a mercy of God that he has, because every single Christian who is beset with something which has hurt him and for which he has sought the Lord to release him and has not gained release can identify with Paul here and his trial. The purpose, the purpose was to keep him humble in the face of all of this great experience through which he passed. To keep him humble. It's a singular proof of godliness that these people retain their humility. Moses besought God to let him go into the promised land for which he had striven so hard to bring those Israelites. And God said no. If you go to the city of Edinburgh, you can't even find the grave of John Knox's brass ring in the cobblestone. A great many of these people had great uh, disgust for anything that would build up man or his image. And Paul has given a thorn in the flesh here, this stake, to keep him humble. To keep him humble. Now then, let me apply this to each one of us in our own lives. Teach me the blessing of unanswered prayer. God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Out in Algeria in the mountain country where there are Berber tribes people, there are women in the, the Berber tribes groups who when a relative is sick and they're afraid that this relative may die or when they're afraid their husband may divorce them because they have not been able to bear a child or when they're afraid of an enemy that might attack them, they take a strip of white cloth and tie it onto a barren tree. And missionaries speak of seeing these white cloths tied in this superstition of Berber tribes people. And they call it in the tribal language a worry tree, a tree that shows that there are trials and fear and anxiety in back of it. I'm sure that if we followed that strange custom, that you could drive all over Montreat and every single house would have some strip of white tied to the trees in front of it. That those who listen on the radio, no matter where they are in Knoxville or whether they're in Rutherfordton or Hendersonville or where, that if you drove down the streets, every house would have some white rag tied to the tree indicating trouble. What do we do when this trouble comes if we belong to Christ and if we have yielded ourselves totally to the conscious lordship of him? We have a right to beseech the Lord to remove it and to pray for healing and release. But God in his infinite wisdom 
may choose to keep that particular trial for us for a purpose. What would the world have been like apart from Helen Keller? Helen Keller, that little girl who was born into a world where she could not hear and could not see, and yet who could accomplish a distinguished academic career. And we grumble about our studies or we grumble about our feeble abilities. Think of that, locked away into a sightless, soundless world with the only communication by touch, by touch. And yet can take a distinguished degree, can play music, can converse with the greatest people. A teacher came to her named Ann Sullivan and took her as a little child and taught her. Ann Sullivan died before Helen Keller died. And Helen Keller said of Ann Sullivan, all that I am and all that I ever will be, I owe to my teacher. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's come to teach us. To teach us through these trials that we might experience. And Helen Keller said another beautiful thing. She said, it is a great comfort to me to know that the things which are seen are temporal. And the things which cannot be seen are eternal. All of this world's pomp and glory is passing away. What hypocrites we really are often. I was thinking about that song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I fain would take my stand. Fain means gladly. I gladly would take my stand. Do you know what it says? Content to let the world go by to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. How many people really believe it? We play church, play religion, listen to a service. Think, well, this one's all right. Maybe that'll help me sometime. But is Jesus going to be Lord? Really, Lord? Are we going to be available for the Holy Spirit to work through us and in us? Paul said this messenger, this evil messenger of Satan, got permission from God to come and buffet him, to beat him, so that he would not be exalted above measure and taught him of the great lesson of his life, that my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Beethoven deaf, John Milton blind. Think of the handicapped heroes of the world and how God used so many of them. And then think about yourself and whatever your particular thorn in the flesh might be. And then be willing, after you have prayed to God, to leave it with him and become an expert in thorn and what's, what it is teaching you and how you can grow in the grace of them. Remember that song? I remember as a boy I used to hear the American album of familiar music on the radio and uh, 
that man with that beautiful voice used to sing the song of the blind plowman. And that was very touching to me, the lesson of that song. Set my hands upon the plow, my feet upon the sod. Turn my face then toward the east, and praise be to my God. The God who made his sun to shine alike on you and me. The God who took away my eyes that now my soul might see. Paul bore in the, his body the marks of his Savior. We can surrender our lives to him. And others can see even in our weakness that such as we are, we belong to Jesus. And he may just elect to use whatever that thorn is to make us stronger for him. Let us stand in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your great servant, Paul. We thank you for the day that he met Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was flesh and bone just as we are. We thank you, our Father, that these great apostles of yours, these great disciples of yours, were no different from what we are, except in their willingness to lay themselves completely at your disposal and not to play at Christianity but to be yielded totally and completely to the Lordship of Christ. Help us, therefore, to know that we may come in our weakness and find in thee the grace which can make us strong. So take us, we pray, and make us by thy grace what we ought to be. We don't ask for less thorn. We pray for more grace. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our helper and our guide, be and abide with you all both now and forevermore.